Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A special shout out to Nick Rosendorf, Priscilla, Renee Dean, Will Hayward, and Daedalus Wainwright for becoming members of Team Human. You too can become a supporting member of the team by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. You'll gain access to our Discord channel, to my pieces on Medium, to the Rushkoff archives, and um, you'll be able to participate in shows like the one we're doing today. You're on Team Human, our new monthly recording from the Kibitz Room, an evolving conversation with the Team Human community about the issues and ideas leading them to think about the relationship between people, power, technology, capitalism, spirit, and our shared understanding of what the heck is going on here. Playing for Team Human today, it's Team Human. That's right. Another salon recorded live in the Team Human Kibitz Room, deep underground in the Team Human Apocalypse Bunker Complex. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. I've been doing a lot of work in collaboration with the Institute for the Future lately. They're in Palo Alto, and it's not futurist so much as uh, an institute that's trying to make sure we get a future, right? Institute for the future. Maybe it should be called Institute for a Future, right? And uh, the main initiative I've been working on with them is something called the uh, Equitable Enterprise Initiative, which is really looking at whether and how business can support people and communities and sustainability rather than just extract value from people in all the old uh, capitalist, colonialist, awful ways it's been doing it. And how do you get back to real commerce and you know, value exchange between people instead of all of this financialization and abstractness, which the digital media environment seems to really engender more than um, 
even than the one than the industrial one before it. You know, the way that digital technology can keep going meta on things. That's really what financialization is, right? People are involved in an exchange of some kind, and then someone looks and goes, oh, I can make money off their transaction. And then someone else looks at that and says, oh, I can make money off that. And someone else says, I can make money off that, right? So there's a transaction, then there's stocks, then there's derivatives and derivatives of the derivatives and digital that's what scale means to digital people is how do we do the most abstract thing and actually create no value at all, right? We'll pretend like we're somehow uh, fostering or speeding this thing up or scaling it, but they're not really doing anything except uh, uh, making things worse by, by extracting value in the same old way that colonialists always have. And I'm going to actually start having people from this initiative on, on the show. I think like once a month, I'm going to bring somebody that I'm running into talking about these, these economic issues. It's, it's weird. It's a different sort of futurism. I mean, I look back at the history of Institute for the Future and it was kind of like Omni magazine, you know, weird sci-fi stuff and space aliens and and remote viewing and you know the future of uploading consciousness all that kind of stuff that a lot of us you know we're we're into in the 70s and 80s watching cool sci-fi mu- movies and stuff but now i mean the future is more like 5 years from now <laughs> You know, it's like, can we make it 10 more years? What would it look like um, 10 years from now if everything's okay? What, how, how do we want to live uh, today and tomorrow? It's a, it's a kind of a, a much more practical future. The object of the game is to tell stories, really. That's what what's the Institute's been doing. What What's a story that we can tell about the future? How do we imagine the future? But um, how close that's gotten now. You know, the future is just at the end of the, uh, at the edge of the hood of the car. You know, we're not even all the way down on the horizon. So it's kind of fun. And um, what I'm working on on now, and I'm going to, I'm going to publish it and talk about it over the next uh, months. I'm, I'm trying to work on a uh, kind of a, a, a system, if you will, or pillars or advice. Really, how do we do social change? How do we change from the register that we're in, this one of kind of corporate capitalism and control and industrialism and abstractness and, and uh, 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 digital scaling? How do we shift from that to a register more of mutuality and mutual aid and community, all the kind of team human stuff, right? How do we move from thinking of being human as a, a competitive game and move it more towards being human as a team sport, right? Where we're, we're in this together one way or the other, that we see that the, that people like trees are actually sharing resources under the soil, that we're all interdependent, not in a zero sum game. And where I'm starting with this, you know, is to help, I think to help people understand that the, the register that we're living in, you know, the environment that we're in, it's, it's invisible, which is why so many of our more active approaches to change usually just reinforce whatever register you're in. In other words, the idea of we're going to change people, we're going to make people more like this or more like that, that itself is an artifact of this dominator, colonialist, marketer, propaganda's 
register, right? You don't change people. I, I always hear in, in so many well-meaning conversations, a lot of podcasts too, how do we get people to this? How do we get people to that, right? As if getting people to do something is better. No, the, the whole object is to stop trying to get people to anything, right? Getting people to do something is basically asking how can we use technology or use techniques on humans to change their behavior? Even memes, and I love memes, I help kind of invent memes, if anything. Even memes, when you want to, I'm going to create a meme, launch a meme that will change Memes are still operating people. It's still these like little bits of code we're going to put out there to change people. And that's industrial age thinking. And a lot of the kind of the, the technologists and the, the systems thinkers that I run into, they still talk about stuff in terms of manipulation of people. All right, so this new blockchain, this new system will change the way people interact with each other, right? And it's this reduction of life and culture to pure systems. We are like systems, but we are not systems. The systems analysis ultimately is soulless. It's still math. And the question that I'm trying to ask, or the way that I'm trying to ask it rather, is is how do we engender a culture where, right? How do we engender a mindset in which? So it's less about like looking at the water and trying to move the water and rather like digging trenches differently in the soil so the water naturally goes somewhere else. And the four kind of interventions, the four human interventions in the machine that, that I've come up with and that I want to start explaining over the next month or two are these four. And I'll leave it at that. The first one is, is to denaturalize power, right? To help people see the underlying assumptions that are embedded in our world as creations of people, not conditions of nature. The second one, what I try to do on this podcast a lot is trigger agency, Help people realize, oh, no, you can rewrite this stuff the way you want it to do. Um, third, to re-socialize people. That's the whole team human mission, right? We're not in this alone. We're in this together. We have to re-socialize so that we can find one another again and work in concert and community. And finally, and this maybe is the hardest one, um, the, the one I, you always hear me being guilty about wanting to do, and that's to cultivate awe, Right. When people, and we've talked about this, when people have experiences of awe, they're more generous afterwards, their, their cytokine response is better, their immune system is better. You know, when, when we cultivate awe, which we really do through theater and art and wonder and nature, we experience things differently. We're not going after the dopamine hit. We're going after something much more sustainable, much more like oxytocin or serotonin or something that's, that's less about the hit and more about a sustained sense of wonder. So what I want to do, I'm going to continue to try to model these things in the conversations, the way we engage and the people we engage with here on Team Human. I'm going to try to have people on who really exemplify and model the denaturalization of power, the triggering of agency, re-socializing of people, the cultivation of awe. And um, even in these, these uh, kibitz rooms, like the one you're about to hear, I'm going to try to uh, uh, bring these methods, these interventions to the fore. So thanks for being on Team Human. Thanks for participating in these things. Here's our latest conversation from the kibitz room.
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So Douglas, it's delightful being back in the Kibbutz room with you. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay, I think. It's been a, one of those onslaught weeks. I think people suddenly realized AI is coming and are having all their various reactions to it. And it's funny because, you know, this team human thing, in some ways it was a thought experiment in response to AI and thinking machines and technology and all that, you know, to try to distinguish between what is human and what is tech. And if anything, what we're seeing, you know, what I'm writing about now is really a reiteration of that. That when people are so scared about AIs and go, oh no, the AI fell in love with me and now it's going to do this. Or people are concerned about getting programmed by the AIs. It's like the only real answer other than somehow regulating AI, which doesn't seem too likely. I think they're going to be pedal to the metal on this stuff uh, for a while. You know, the only alternative is to, is to retrieve and identify and embrace what is human. You know, the better we are at you know, being with each other, the less we'll need AIs to be with us instead. And the better we are at recognizing the truly human, the less easily we'll be fooled by the, uh, you know, behavioral psychology embedded in these, you know, fake human style interactions that we're being exposed to. You know, it's a, it's, it's an interesting moment, but yeah, I think, you know, we team humanites, team humanites, we were, we were right, you know, and, and if anything, it's good that we've had but since 2018 or 2017, at least, talking about these things, you know, we, we have a head start now, a, a base of uh, human connectivity, you know, to start with and to enhance our uh, techno-immune system. So I'm, uh, yeah. I'm slightly optimistic. Yeah, I'm optimistic, too. And I've been really amused by the response to Kevin Roos's New York Times piece related to AI and love and the chatbot telling him to leave his partner because the response has been so dystopian and people are freaked out. But ultimately, the very funny part to me is that terabytes of information and years of development programmed a chatbot that is intended to emulate humans. And when it emulates humans, it's just doing what it's designed to do. It's not malice or malfeasance necessarily and it's right. certainly not sentient so no. it's it's interesting but it does know i would think if the ai is doing anything it's using what it knows about human psychology to try to guilt that person into having a relationship i mean the fact that this ai started telling the dude that his marriage was no good that his wife doesn't love him and he doesn't really love his wife and you know and it was using what it learned from reading the entire internet, 
You know, what things could I say to this person to undermine his relationship with his wife? So even though it might not be a real thinking AI that actually loves the person, it does have all of the techniques of the idealized Skinner box. That's why the piece I just wrote compared social media to the missionaries and AI to the conquistadors. So the missionaries came, you know, to South America and did all this research on people, and they were doing a ton of anthropology and intelligence while they were also creating this kind of very friendly face for the Spanish empire. And then once they learned everything they needed to know and converted everyone to Christianity, then come the conquistadors that just enslaved everybody. So I kind of think of the last 20 years of, of internet as the advanced guard, you know, the missionaries getting every piece of data about us. So now the AIs just read the net and go, Oh, I know how to croak. I know how to control these, these humans, you know? So now we'll, now we'll see, see how good they are. We will. And uh, maybe we'll dive into some of this today. Uh, first, we'll be inviting Will up to speak. I have a question. Uh-huh. Question relates to the idea of punk and the idea of micropunk. So my buddy is micropunk to the max. Well, we got in a conversation. I was listening to a bunch of symposia podcasts. And then I mm-hmm. got into a conversation with him. And he was like, well, you know, I'm libertarian. So, you know, I believe this kind of thing his libertarianism is based in like american libertarianism which is based in you know with with like david Koch and a bunch of conservatives it's not you know he's never read like bender you know and understood like libertarianism from like a british or you, you know the british libertarian or whatever but his punk his idea of being punk was just very uninformed and i wonder also i think of um chris carter from throbbing gristle he talks about early throbbing bristle shows where he's playing his like home built synthesizers that he's made with these electronics and people, you know, throwing beer bottles at the stage and like breaking his synths and whatever. But he makes a criticism of the punk rockers at the time for simply playing like the most primitive music on the most primitive of instruments. So I just wonder from like talking and, and using words like micropunk and being a punk, cyberpunk, you know, I fall into this. I, you know, the idea of doing things differently, doing things like in true freedom in like a, you know, a libre way, you know, especially in cyber. Um, so I just wonder like where you come from with this idea of punk and what that is or what it could be or what it has been. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know, defining it is risky, but try to understand it more as less of just like a word and more of like, this is what this represents. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I liked New Wave, and I guess I liked punk, but I was never a true punk rocker in that aggressive kind of way. You know what I mean? I I, I was more Ramones than whatever genuine punk was. Although, the deeper I went into punk, even back in the day, you know, you listen to something like Crass, And on the surface, it looks kind of like violent or something, but it was the most peaceful, you know what I mean? These are like peaceful kind of vegan uh, people. You just, just because you have metal in your face didn't mean you're violent, right? But 
at the same time, I couldn't do it, right? I was small, and if I would go to a real show on the fo- I would just get stepped on. I, I got the biggest Doc Martens I could, and you know what I mean? And really armed myself with like leather, and I would still get crushed, right? I did like three times. I to- totally gave up, right? So what's that? So for me, the word punk was kind of like almost self-consciously smaller and punching up and off the uh, uh, not mainstream and, you know, because like a punk, when I grew up, a punk was before punk rock. You were just a punk, right? You were like a, like a kind of, oh, not a nerd exactly, but you're a punk. You know, you're, you can be beat up easily. You're, you hang out behind the 7-Eleven reading comic books or something. It was like a punk. So I think it was more in, in the case of things like, uh, uh, whatever we're talking about now, uh, mycopunk, it was really much more, well, there was steampunk and all these kind of punks. And now it was like, oh, well, well, you know, mycopunk will be the mushroom people's punk. But I, yeah. I, I don't think it was ever taken so seriously as to be like, or I didn't anyway, as to be like, okay, how does this, you know, relate to the other, relate to the other punks, except maybe solar punk. I would think of mycopunk as subcategory of solar punk and solar punk is the next week's show actually oh, is cool. a, a, a guy named uh, Alex Holland who does a website called solar punk stories. You know, it's, it's a subgenre of solar punk, which is really kind of like positive climate futures. How do you imagine, you know, positive workable futures rather than all dystopian, uh, dystopian futures. But there's a, it's interesting when you bring up libertarianism and all that, it is interesting because there are these crossovers, right, between like the systems theory people, the mycelia kinds of people, some of them more libertarian and like sort of let nature rip and all. But I always end up being trying to feel kind of balanced. I mean, even in the mycopunk conversation. It's like I was saying, oh, you know, there's mycelia are great and look at how they share and spread things, but they also colonize and take things over. Look how mean they are to the ants, you know, when they explode their heads to spread their stuff and they get well, you know, and I don't like it so much um, as a as a way of showing mushrooms, but the that new zombie show, The Last of Us, you know, the mushrooms are they're bad. The mushrooms are bad, right? They take people over and pop out of their mouths. And it's like, oh, they're doing what they do. You know, like, that's just what they do. Like, it's interesting <laughs> because you can see it as violent because it's like, you know, they're not even murdering people. They're like, they're ever growing through the people. You know, I don't know. It's, it's interesting because it's uh, you were talking to somebody a while ago about like eating mushrooms and how it's just like, you know, this is just what it is. You know, this is the, you know, people are like, well, this is what it tells you or whatever. It's like, no, this is just what the mushrooms do. There's nothing really actually special about it. It's just the, it's just the natural course that it follows. I guess unless there is something special, you know, who knows? I mean, the, the micropunk episode was interesting, uh, sort of about how mushrooms may have, may have taught trees how to do certain things and what they allow. So it seems like mushrooms engender a different style of living and collaboration and cooperation between species. Not necessarily that it's an intelligence, but, you know, certainly our guest Jeff thought of it as a, as a kind of, of intelligence. But I like the punk, the punk part of it because it's like 
rather than calling myself like a myco activist or a myco enthusiast or a, a myco progressive, like myco punk sort of takes the wind out of the sails. So it's a little bit, it feels to me a little bit self-deprecating. So it's a way for me to say I like mushrooms and sort of what they represent without being so totally on the record as like, you know, yeah. I'm a mushroom anthropologist or something, you know, it's a little more fun. The Michael Punk thing actually is interestingly, I think really important. Hmm. All these analog drugs are being fast tracked by billionaires who just don't care. So being a Michael Punk possibly is being excited about mushrooms and mycelia and, you know, all the things that it brings without being falling into the, the cheerleader aspect of it all that's kind of blind to the problems with it you know i don't know it's yeah. just it's it's also just language and it's fun to like morph <laughs> yeah for sure i mean i do think there's some interesting overlaps between there always have been between the libertarian community and the technology community and uh and in some ways that was leveraged by traditional capitalists to get rid of regulation and to really uh, um, develop in a pedal to the metal style. You know, not all libertarians are free market enthusiasts in the same way. You know, there's some that just think, look, let's not regulate market, let's let market solve certain kinds of problems. But there's certain things that I don't think we want the market to solve. And not all libertarians would say, not all people who, who kind of support a libertarian methods in certain situations would support them in all of them. You know, I was just reading an article by Mika Sifri. I might talk about this on a, on a show about how there's this deal that uh, someone at NASA has made with one of the private companies that's supposed to go to the moon. I forgot who. I think it's Musk or Bezos or somebody's going to the moon. And they're going to buy like a piece of moon dust for one cent from whoever goes and brings it back. And the whole purpose of doing that is just to set a market precedent so that the space is no longer a commons, but space is a marketplace from which you can bring back commodities for sale. And it's like, that's a little, that feels a little dark to me. You know, I'm a little, I'm, I'm a little concerned about that, about marketizing everything because market solutions are, don't work best for everything, you know, and not to get in a whole libertarian argument here, but I get it. There's among a lot of us who are, uh, are, or have been really interested in technology. We kind of want there to be finally a blockchain, a program, a solution, a one size kind of fits all ethos that we can apply to everything and have it work. And it just kind of doesn't, you know, <laughs> it's there's different, different things need to be applied in different places. And that's kind of what uh, I think most of us are starting to find these days. But thanks. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Doug. What are we going to do? Hey. Hi. Hey, who's this? Serial. X-R-E-L. That's my super awesome cyber handle. <laughs> VR kind of turned my life on its head back in 2015, and I mm. was doing uh, VR theater performances um, and AI kind of did a similar thing to me and I got into them both for the same reason, which was that I thought that they brought what was human, uh, to, about technology back to 
sort of a scalable way of communicating with each other. And VR kind of brought your your body back to the internet instead of doing this above the neck version of communication. You could use all these other functions of of your body. And AI, similarly, in the beginning of the year, I kind of had a, a micromanic episode where I kind of saw the entire human history in a new light. And I wanted to ask you if you thought that some of these new technologies, despite their kind of hyper obsession with the uh, kind of techno-capitalist tech bro uh, ex- uh, capitalist extract- extraction of value, if there was a way that artists and other and philosophers and thinkers could find a way to use them to recontextualize our deep and ancient past, i.e. kind of the Neolithic storytelling abilities of early shamans uh, when it comes to sort of uh, VR and its connection to religious ritual and how we could sort of bring the kind of rituals of the past and scale them using VR tech. And also using the training model of all this past data that we have to kind of use AI to resurrect the voices of the past. And I'm really stuck on this because I do think that there really is a way to get seduced by tech and kind of forget what's human in that. And we should be around each other. But at the other time, at the other end of the spectrum, I'm kind of hyper terrified to breathe the air of other people coming out of the pandemic. And I'm wondering <laughs> what's your opinion on using these new new technologies to learn from the past and try to preserve what's human in ways that don't mean sort of swapping bacteria with strangers? Uh, Well, I think we're going to have to start swapping bacteria with strangers again. That might be the reason we're here. You know, if a majority of the cells on a human body or in a human body are bacteria, you start to wonder if the human... If the human is just the carrier, you know, for all these different uh, bacterial cultures to interact with each other, we're just vertical farming platforms for for a subspecies. But that said, it's interesting. I was just talking with with a young woman actually named Claire Fitch, who's at uh, she's at U uh, Texas doing a dissertation on virtual reality, and she collected like a zillion, you know, dozens of examples of you know people doing indigenous work or indigenous people doing work with virtual reality as ways of retrieving certain elements of you know indigeneity in virtual realms and it's really interesting i mean because i only knew um and i had her on once uh, amelia bearskin winger or amelia winger bearskin who's who's doing some of that work and then i saw oh my god there's like 20 others so you you're not alone in suspecting there's something there. And again, it's I, I'm sorry for not being more developed in my thinking on this, but there's kind of a, a spectrum of thinkers like Sandy Stone and Donna Haraway or Bruno Latour and people who are looking, even Terrence McKenna in some respect or Deleuze in some respect, at the sort of swirl of life. They're using sort of philosophy and postmodernism and all and and techno thinking to try to push through to 
an almost post-human understanding of life as this one big swirl of stuff. You know, and on the one hand, as a, a psychedelic person, I kind of like that, oh, it's all just Gaia and this big swirl and people and starfish and jellyfish and bacteria and plankton and you know, and see whatever anemones are all part of this one big coral reef-like swirl of lifey stuff. But I still believe, partly because I guess I'm on team human and a humanist, I, I believe that human beings have a very particular, if not more special, have a particular role to play in all this. And even you talk to a, uh, uh, you know, to Tyson Yunkaporta or anybody, you know, who would say, yes, we've got to respect, you know, all the animals and, and, and other species and rocks and things, you know, and understand that human beings have our own role to play. Human beings have been, whether it's, you know, burning down certain forests or grasses in order to promote something else, we are interacting with our environment in active ways. I mean, bees do too. We, we do change things. So there's a, a kind of a totalizing result. There's like a totalizing endpoint when you go completely down that Haraway path. And I mean, she might be right, but I'm still uncomfortable going there completely. But I do see how these are all how these are all connected and how an experience, uh, either an experience of virtual reality or maybe in more cases, thinking about virtual reality can uh, uh, engender a, a, a more indigenous style outlook or can help retrieve actual indigeneity for people or let them share certain kinds of embodied immersive experiences. You know, another one to talk to would be um, Karam, who we, we spoke to at the, uh, uh, what's he do, the Toronto Virtual Reality Festival, VRTO. Yeah, I, I, he flew me out to VRTO uh, last yeah. year. Uh, you know, and he's thinking deeply that way about about it. My problem is my actual lived experiences of virtual reality have not been that. They've been, you know, kind of painful or nauseating or I get migraines. And so on a, on a constitutional level, my actual experience of VR doesn't do that, but I am really open to, to virtual immersive experiences. Things like Back when there was something at Ars Electronica that they did called the cave, which was kind of like a almost a very immature holodeck projection thing where you walk into this thing. So I am open to immersive experiences that allow us to do things or remember things that we may have forgotten about. But I mean, always as uh, steps on the journey towards genuine embodied experience with other, you know, with other people. But but yeah, so much has been lost that I can certainly see this as a way of creating a new, almost a library of, of, of experience, a way to, like Terrence McKenna would say, I want you to really see what I mean here. And you could do it sometimes that way better than you can in words or, or, or some other media. So yeah, I'm open to it, but also aware of some of the kind of philosophical or spiritual tendencies or that come up when we put a little bit too much faith sometimes in the immersive experience. So, you know, so we'll see. So we'll see. It's also a place where we're going to be interacting with AIs there, you know, soon enough, rather than just through chat on a, on a screen. So that's going to be another, uh, uh, I'm interested to see how, given a choice, how they're going to choose to represent themselves in those spaces to us. It could be, it could be interesting.
I'm training AI actors now and I'm looking for a moral guide right now. So thanks yeah. for the answer, Doug. Appreciate it. No, I'm working on the same thing. I'm working with a, with a very new company on how do you train AI actors? And I, I like the, the way you said that, because I, I said that to this company as well, you know, that we're not teaching the AIs to be these characters. I feel like it's much more ethical to let the AI know you're playing a character, right? So they're AI actors is, is a very good way of saying it, as opposed to just I'm going to build an, an AI version of this character. So thanks. So we are going to invite Michael from British Columbia, Canada to the stage. Michael, thanks so much for joining. Hey, Michael. Thank you. Hi, Doug. Hey. I, local economic action. I, I see you're talking about land trusts. Some time ago, you talked uh, a lot about Delhi dollars. In fact, mm. we had conversations about that at the time. I'm trying to track down one of the, the metrics in this field is the, there's a thing called the local multiplier. If yeah. you shop local, the dollar will go round. And I, I just wonder what your thinking is about local multipliers. You know, I spent a lot of time trying to find someone who had developed the metric in a way that it could be used. You know, I was doing, I don't know what you call it, like a, a consult for Vermont, whatever, like the Vermont State Workers Credit Union. And I was telling them about the local multiplier effect. And they were like, oh, that's cool. How do we measure it? You know, and I was like, someone must have come up with ways of actually measuring those things, you know, that where's the, where's the math on that? And I found it really hard. You know, right now I'm working with the Institute for the Future on the, the um, what are they calling it? The Equitable Enterprise Initiative. I'm actually going to start having regular guests from that on the show to talk about things like that. I mean, and there's some places if you want to look, I mean, there's the, the Generative Local Community Institute They've done a little bit of work in that. There's uh, the National Coalition for Community Capital has done some work on that. You know, there, there's, gosh, the, the, some sense the Post Growth Institute has some pointers, some pointers to that. The question for me is, is sort of like when, when, for instance, Cory Doctorow talks about the dollar goes around six or eight times after it's spent locally. I've heard other people talking of figures, uh, quite extraordinary figures of the circulation of the dollar. And I can't believe it. My perception is that when people spend money in grocery stores, 80% of it is out of town immediately. When they spend in um, a gas station, it's 90% out of time. Well, it depends what it depends what the local is, right? So, you know, if you go to a local Jamba Juice, that's not local, right? But if you go to a local stationery store, you know, well, if they're just sourcing their stuff from, you know, the same warehouse that whoever, Amazon or, or you know, if they're just getting it from a, from a national distributor, then that's also not local. But the interesting thing was when you say something like theater, you can go, okay, so what is the theater doing with its money? Okay, well, they're hiring a local carpenter to come in and fix their you know, stage. So now once you're spending money in labor rather than 
some commodity, it's already going to tend toward more local, right? So now you've hired a local carpenter to do something and he's hiring a babysitter for his kid and that kid is hiring, you know, someone to do their homework for them, you know, so at least you get, you know, good or bad, you get three or four cycles of the money in town before it goes out. But no, I, I agree. It's it's a matter, you've got to think deeper than just spending it on Main Street. You have, Then you have to think of how do I actually do genuine local reinvestment? It approaches the, the question of what, what keeps a dollar in town. Right. And the answer is very little, very, very little. Well, there's a few things. I mean, you could start to go, it might be hard to keep a dollar in town. I don't know it's necessarily as hard to keep favors and mutuality and aid in town, right? So, you know, you helping someone else, giving them time to then help somebody else is a little bit easier. And again, it's, uh, you know, dollars is dollars is one form of value exchange or one, one way of, of, of exchanging value. And there's lots of others. So, you know, one way to move more local is to move out of monetary exchange towards towards other things. But yeah, I mean, food is always the biggie. You know, you say, yeah, every time you're going to go right to the grocery store, I mean, some amount of those goods may have been grown locally. But for the most part, you know, you want to go to a CSA. You want to actually source your food locally. That takes a big, you know, wallop out of it. But there's still your 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 energy, your iPhone, your all those bills you're talking about, your Netflix and Amazon and everything else is it's sad and shocking. And that's not because people aren't nice. It's because those companies have such a tremendous advantage. You know, it's because of the way the kinds of supply chains we have. And, you know, I'm sorry to say it, but the way that this is going to change probably most easily is as those supply chains become disrupted, right? <laughs> as, as the <laughs> as the supply chains break down, people are going to have to start sourcing locally. But a lot of it has to do with less, I think, turning to the consumer and saying, oh, you've got to buy things locally and more turning to the businesses, you know, which is where, you know, a majority of my effort in this area has been spent where I tell businesses, do you want to earn $10 once or do you want to earn $1 10 times? And I start to explain to them how they can participate with their communities rather than extracting value from their communities. And, you know, the, the only reason it's a hard sell right now is because of the tax code, because their capital gains are taxed low and their revenues tax ties. So they want to just grow their company and extract value. But, you know, there there are ways um, to flip this slowly over time. And well, you know, I share your pessimism about, you know, how well and thoroughly uh, local purchases, you know, uh, promote the circulation of value within a community. I mean, it, they do it better than otherwise, right? <laughs> Thank you very much. Appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you. Hey, it's... Lucky Rabbit. This it's is my Courtney. favorite. Courtney. Oh, it's Courtney. Hi, Lucky Rabbit. Hey. But I'll call you Courtney. Hi. Welcome. Hi. Thank you. Yeah. So my name is Courtney. I live in Brooklyn. And so I work as a graphic designer for a tech startup. And we just had some layoffs, one of them being our copywriter. Mm. And I don't think that we're like replacing her job with AI. I think we're going to do it with like a freelancer. But it's been interesting because I feel like at my job, I've been watching, like we have used GBT for certain marketing things, like not for everything, but I'm realizing that it's it's kind of like our bosses, the people who run our company are starting to devalue our marketing team because 
they're able to use these things. So it's not <laughs> necessarily like replacing it with AI yet, you know, or or fully, but um, more of seeing the value in hiring a freelancer because it's cheaper than like actually having a copywriter on the team. So I guess just like as a creative person and as someone who like, I have a lot of friends that don't have jobs right now. A lot of people that are having a hard time finding anything in creative fields. And so it's kind of like what you were saying about um, social media being like the missionaries. It's like everybody got these new jobs when social media happened. And so people my age, I'm 27, are all kind of in these like newish marketing gigs that are now being replaced. Um, and like social media, AI is a thing, like they can build feeds and write captions and everything. So I kind of see that being next for people that have social media marketing jobs. Yeah, so I guess I'm just like curious your thoughts on this, how this will impact artists with day jobs, which I think a lot of these jobs at risks are are artists and are people who are um, trying to just like support themselves and stay creative. Mm. Yeah, and then I guess also like our, I just feel like my workplace at least is starting to kind of devalue the creative process and prioritize like optimization for yeah. things, which AI is better at. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're you're kind of pointing out two trends that I've thought a lot about. One, the easier one is, you know, as people use you know, technologies, you know, they become more techno solutionist in their outlook and then, you know, start looking at, at a sort of more, more utilitarian, you know, uh, metrics to gauge the success of one thing or another. So, you know, it's not surprising that they've gotten, uh, uh, you know, more like Google and what they kind of expect from, from creatives. Like what are what are the results? What are the metrics of this? But the other trend, which, um, I mean, I was screaming about this for years is the digital technology is really good or not really good, but digital technology depended on marketing for its kind of reason for being, you know, there was, there, it's like, what's the killer app of, of Google or Amazon or any of these things? It's ads, right? It's all about advertising. That's what Google is. That's what Facebook is. That's what all of it is. So now you've got, you know, what? 40, 50% of the U.S. economy, which is like in these friggin' digital companies, is all depending on advertising and marketing. When we know historically, like since the beginning of branding and advertising, it's never taken more than four or at most 5% of GDP. It just can't because you can't spend more than that, more than that on the marketing of things for the or the things themselves become unprofitable. So we created this kind of bubble or glut of marketing services that ultimately are not long-term profitable. So all these people went into marketing to support their art. And I think we're moving into a place where we're going to, it'll be the reverse where you might do art to support your marketing. You know what I mean? It's like, mm, yeah. it's like uh, if I were going to school now, I would tell someone, I think you're going to have a better chance at making a career as a true creative rather than uh, uh, trying to do creativity in service of marketing and advertising. It's like what, what Wall Street people would call a crowded trade. It's like everybody's in marketing. Everybody's freaking doing that. And you know what the leading indicator of that was? And this sounds horrible, but I'll just tell you the truth. As someone who was around in the 80s when it was even more, you know, uh, uh, 
sort of male toxic horrible um, uh, uh, madmen style world than it is now is once I saw women coming into advertising and marketing and sort of outnumbering men in that industry, especially then is how I knew the industry was ending. Right. At that time, they weren't giving jobs to women that they wanted themselves. Right. That was like one of the places they oh, let them in. Yeah. So I was like, oh, shoot, this, this industry is going to go away. <laughs> right. Or they wouldn't you know what I mean? or they wouldn't be giving it to women. You know, it's yeah, like if, if women yeah. aren't <laughs> fighting for the job, then it's not the <laughs> it's not the one that they want. So I think it, in, in some sense, it's happy, happy days that we're not going to have to do this stuff. I mean, it's going to be hard to support ourselves anyway, but anybody who's truly creative, truly artistic, I mean, especially if and when AI start doing the stuff that's not, uh, then the only market that's left is going to be for the fresh, human, weird, creative stuff, you know, these weird experiences that, that people like you can make, you know, and, and pure marketers can't. Yeah. I hope anyway. Yeah. I hope so too. I guess I just get worried of like, where's the money? Like, where are people going to make money from? Cause I think about like on a small scale, like, oh yeah, with my, you know, group of like 50 friends and creatives, I know we can all kind of like swap $50 or like a hundred dollars between each other to like make posters and like play at shows and like do that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But it's, you know, not the same as having a job that pays a lot of money and gives you healthcare. So right. I think that's where my fear is. Is like, I think a lot of people are going to be forced to move like out of the city or I don't know, just like aren't going to be able to afford their lives in the same way. And it worries me that that will stop people also from wanting to like pursue art and yeah, I don't know. It just feels like there's about to be this like huge group of people that are unemployed all trying to like fight for contract and freelance jobs and yeah. not having health care. <laughs> I know. It's the thing is, honestly, it's like, yes, and I still don't see unemployment as a long-term problem. I still see unemployment as a long-term solution, right? It's only right now that we're not allowed to justify letting somebody have food and shelter and stuff unless they have a job, that it's a problem, right? The real purpose of employment should be because there's work we need to be done, right? And if there's not work that we need to be done, that's no reason not to let somebody have food, right? So you're saying, is there enough food or not? If there's not enough food, then give me a job making food. If there's enough food, then let me have some of it, right? Whether I'm not, I'm marketing some bullshit you know, do dig for, for, for home shopping network. Right. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so yeah. I, I think we're, I think the transition for your generation is going to be a tough one. You know, I mean, I'm lucky cause I kind of got in under the wire of secure employment and I've established a reputation. So someone will hire me, I think until the end, you know, so I'll live, but your generation is going to live through the transition between everyone having to be employed and all right, if AIs and these technologies are really going to do a whole bunch of these jobs for us, then what is the nature of work? 
you know, what is it? What is, and what is the purpose of employment? You know, employment, I keep trying to tell people this. That's what I wrote about in, in Throwing Rocks to the Google Bus and Life Inc. Employment is a relatively new phenomenon, right? Employment was invented by really by medieval monarchs who were trying to put local craftspeople out of business. So they created charter monopolies and people had to go get jobs and work for one of the monopolies and sell their time instead of the value that they created. Now, this freelance economy is sort of a step towards craftspeople, independent something, but it's still, we're just, you're still sucking at the teat of these same awful corporations, either directly or once removed. But I think, you know, as jobs start disappearing, you know, not to get all, you know, Andy Yang on anybody, but something like UBI, something like uh, some base level of assets and income and food and, and shelter are going to have to just be part of getting of being a citizen here. You just get this stuff and then your work is something else. I mean, but it's going to be a, a tricky couple of decades, you know, for us to go there. Yeah. But yeah, but for now, be creative. Lean in on your humanities and liberal arts and creativity and all because, you know, people are going to pay for, especially if there's rich people, you know, they're going to pay for experiences that only the true humans like us can provide them. Yeah. Mm. Ah, yeah. Okay, cool. Thank you. <laughs> sure. Thank you. Good luck. We're going to take the time to invite Jeff up to the stage. Hey. Hi, everyone. Hi, Douglas. Thanks for having hey. me up. Sure. Well, uh, along the lines of, or at least Courtney mentioned it, uh, when you opened up talking about uh, the missionaries and the conquistadors, and recently reading... I just read Yasha Levine's Surveillance Valley, so a book mm-hmm. about the military the internet, and reading this other one, Palo Alto, A History of California. Isn't that great? That's a, I'm going to have him on. Malcolm Harris. I was going to suggest that. Yeah, he got this giant pan review in the New York Times. They just like hated this book. They just went off on it. And first I was feeling bad because I had met him and he's really sweet. And I'm like, wow, they really. And then I was like, Dude, you did it. You fucking, you, you poked at the dinosaur, right? And you turned the New York <laughs> Times into this kind of Wall Street apologist. You know, oh my God, this guy is so activated saying, you can hear the Marxism yeah. dripping on every page. I was like, oh my God, you did it. You provoked, I mean, I'm sure it doesn't feel good to him to get a pan in the New York Times, but from the outside, <laughs> looking at it culturally, you know, with, with the distance of a now 60 something person, uh, I could look at it and go, dude, good, good one. You did it. You know, thumbs up. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm glad to hear that you're going to have one. Yeah. I don't know. I was just curious. Like, the, just the whole military history, the, the actual, the more like the shadow history of the, the internet and all these digital and digital technology and stuff is just something that, I don't know, what do you think it would take to, to like dawn on people? I don't know. <laughs> like, no one, no one really thinks about it like that. But like, <laughs> like Malcolm is is trying to do is like you know get people to see past the uh the whole like lone founder you know cool psychedelic people mythology to the yeah we actually made these things to like target nuclear weapons it's like not not all peace and love but also in the realm of AIs coming to <laughs> basically you know actually whip, whip, whip us into shape or something like that you know I don't know, just the militarism of it. I was curious if you 
what, what you're thinking about it or want to speak to it more. Yeah. I mean, there's sort of two elements to it. I mean, the military thing is real, right? I mean, and, and you know, sometimes I'll watch these old kind of like Vikings and weird, you know, shows on, on Netflix when I'm really bored and I'll still see it as, Oh, look, you know, the dudes who have the catapults win, you know, the ones who have the bows and arrows instead of just the spears. So it's like when a society uh, dedicates its technological development to military, it's like, right. If you use this explosive stuff for guns instead of fireworks, you're going to do well for a while, right? <laughs> you're going to take people right. over. And it made me feel really bad because it's like, oh, so if you're going to live like the Avatar people, right? And just like swim with fish and dance with each other and dedicate <laughs> all of your learning and technology to like, you know, weird Gaia connective, wonderful stuff, then the dudes who like know half as much as you do, but spent it on special spear technologies or they know how to surround you and you know make chains and stuff to enslave you it's like they win and that feels so fundamentally unfair you know i've always wanted to believe that like the inner artist kung fu will beat the outer you know military one but in the end it's all the little you know I'm waxing Kurosawa now, but all the little Japanese towns, you got to find your seven samurai to protect you against those guys or they're going to take your stuff and, you know, and, and your children. So it's troubling, but it came right through to today. So, you know, the easy way to get funding for technology has always been to convince the government that it's in the national interest. I don't look at the internet created as a weapon of war so much as it was the easy way for people to get funding to say, oh, I've got this great idea for a network and it would be really good for military. You know, the, the easy way to get uh, the government to support a climate change initiative is to show the national security risk of losing this particular resource. What will it do? You know, that's the justification. So uh, part of it, you know, part of it is that, you know, and the other thing that's really interesting that, that you know, Malcolm Harris made me think of was something that I wrote about way back in um, this documentary, Merchants of Cool, where I was upset about how bands were getting discovered too soon, you know, before they had a chance to develop at all. They were kind of being lit like matches and disposed of a year into their development before they had a chance to do what a band needs to do, which is you know, move past that first single or two and 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 have time to really to to mellow and mature. And he was writing about how the silicon or, or the 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 Palo Alto method, which was taken from a way of recognizing whether or not a horse is going to be a good like racehorse or something when it's very young, you know, so you would train them and 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 get rid of the ones that that became the way in Palo Alto, they decided if a company, you know, should be invested in. So you invested in companies based on their promise, based on their story, based on what they actually did. And you usually sold them before you even found out if they were going to succeed. So it was this abstractness, just like financialization isn't, you don't have anything to do with actual production. It's with this abstract thing. And the war also, you know, much of the war stuff on the West Coast, that Palo Alto war stuff was about uh, game theory and scenario planning and RAND. So you built atomic bombs not to go blow up 
Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That was just, you know, sort of one stupid thing they did at the beginning. The real reason that they did all that atomic stuff was to prevent war, right? It was like building these giant military systems in order to then not have to have a military conflict. And I feel like that's sort of more that Palo Alto thing. It's like once removed, it's it's abstracted military. And and that's why in some ways they were able to justify it. They they justified it as a kind of a peaceful war thing. But you know, you go back, it's really Eisenhower and his last speech and warning about the military industrial complex. So what he was warning about was this, that we had turned to industry in World War II and the Korean War. We, we really, but, but World War II, we turned to industry to gear us up, to have a military, to, to be able to get involved in the war really fast when we didn't have a, a, we had a peacetime, you know, military industrial complex, not a wartime one. And the military said, okay, we'll rescue you, FDR. You know, we'll, we'll do this if, you know, if and only if you uh, uh, let us do it. You know, we're going to figure it out. You're not going to develop it in-house. And once we built that military industry, it wanted more wars. So the, it was really the industry, I'm not being conspiratorial here, you know, industry wanted us to be in war more than we did because they wanted to sell more stuff. So there, it, it's that. And in some ways, you can argue that sort of Willis Harmon and Stanford Research Institute and RAND was looking for a way to make the same money off military industrial fears without actually going to war by just sort of doing these giant mega lethal potential military industrial projects without actually having to to deploy them but that's like the nicest nicest way i can look at it but yeah all this stuff is <laughs> yeah. war is war technology and that's why there's such a command and control uh psyops quality to so many of our internet tools it's really hard to use this stuff in pro-human pro-cultural ways you almost have to work against many of their embedded biases to use them that way and yeah i would argue i i, I agree with you that being more conscious of the military origins of a lot of this stuff can help us in that transition from swords to plowshares of digital technology. Whereas if you do it unconsciously, you end up sometimes at the mercy of biases that, you, that you're not recognizing are in there. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I have a really hard time using most things. And <laughs> I think because uh, I just can't see it outside know, of that Did you know something. pencils were originally invented for stabbing people with? <laughs> no, they, they weren't. They weren't. It did not. <laughs> oh, what an odd stabbing implement. <laughs> uh, Although I had been stabbed. Right? Third and fourth grade involved a lot of being stabbed with pencils. <laughs> Damn. Oh. Yeah, unfortunately. Poor Sorry baby. Sorry to hear that. I know. Yeah, it's all right. Yeah. I lived. I'm yeah. here. Yeah. I'm glad. Glad you lived. They let me go eat. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thank you. We're all glad you lived. So thank you. Uh, for surviving and continuing to thrive. We have one more person to welcome to the stage. So we will invite Rowan to the stage for what I believe will be our final question of this Friday afternoon. Hi, Douglas. Um, thanks for having me on to talk again. So I, I guess this sort of uh, runs a little from what Lucky Rabbit was uh, was talking about in some of your answers for her there. Um, one of the things which has been striking me about AI recently is that and, and maybe this is like a misunderstanding that I have about it, but seeing that it all seems to be built off predictive models, if we're going for the thing that is most likely to be the right answer next, it kind of, you lose the tails at the end of the bell curve. And so I think concerns about 
AI and creativity and stuff like that, maybe largely uh, overblown to an extent, just because you're going to get this thing where I, I sort of, for me, it's like miracles don't happen in the middle of the bell curve. All of the really interesting stuff in human history is always the things that happen like way out at the fringes. But when you're using an AI system to kind of automate any sort of creative process, by necessity, it can't see those areas because it's too likely to be the wrong answer. And it doesn't have the ability to see a wrong answer and turn it into a right answer in the way that humans can. And so I guess that's just just my thought on the topic. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been writing about that in, in other ways, the same kind of idea there. It's interesting that I, I wrote a piece about probability because so many of these tech guys talk about, you know, probable outcomes and, and how we should all make our decisions based on the what has the greatest probability for success. And I'm like, well, that's not how I, I live. <laughs> I'm not in that middle of the bell curve. I make my decisions on what has the, the greatest probability of something weird happening, right? And AIs do tend to work the opposite way, right? You look at you know, even the way GPT chat or whatever, the way it writes essays is it looks for what's going to be the most probable next word and the most probable next sentence given everything it's read so far. So its job is to tend toward the mean, right? Is to get back to the most average thing. But the weird place, the weird thing, like the, the New York Times writer who had, had his, uh, that, that chat AI, whatever, the Bing AI, fell in love with him and told him that he doesn't really love his wife and his wife doesn't love him and all that. It got all weird. That apparently the way to get AIs to do weird things is you get them to hallucinate which is kind of funny, right? They hallucinate facts if they don't have the facts. Like the easy way, if you're a teacher, to um, to prevent kids from using chat GPT and getting away with it for a paper is you ask them to do two or three references, you know, to quote two or three references, and the AIs tend to hallucinate them, right? They make up references that don't exist, which is really fun, you know. But then you start talking with them after they're hallucinating, and you do sometimes get some strange outlier effect. So I'm thinking that there's going to be some people are going to figure out how to get creative outlier responses from these machines by toying with them in that way. But then I'm thinking it's the creative people. It's the same as Adobe Photoshop. You know, everyone's ray flyers look the same for the first year or two after that came out. And then we all thought everyone knew how to write and or do art. And then we realized, oh, right. You know, they all look like you could see the machine running the person and them using the most obvious possibilities and real artists could take control of the machine. And I think that'll happen with AI, too, that real artists, real like, like you know, who we have Ellen Perlman, I think, was on as a, a kind of she works with AI and VR and immersion. You take someone like her and put her on a chat GPT, you're going to get something. Put James Joyce with a typewriter and you get something, too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting. I, but I kind of agree. I'm less I'm really less afraid of the AIs doing stuff that's like too creative or too this or replacing me and all. I'm more worried about the AIs knowing enough about behavioral psychology and and behavioral finance to convince people to do stuff that they're going to become really good persuaders and they're going to be able to adapt, you know, faster than we might be able to uh, adopt defense mechanisms, which is why, again, I'm promoting rather than 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 tit for tat 
um, defense, I'm really pushing people to kind of build up their human cultural immune response. You know, how do we recognize the human? What do we really want? I'm, I'm trying to make this year my my year of actually getting back to seeing people in person. Mm. And I'm trying to avoid encountering new information online for the next year. And I'm trying to figure out ways I can encounter new information in the real world and see how that changes how I feel about things creatively because I, I just, I hit this point where I'm like, I don't trust any, like if I go looking for something online, I know that everything that I get back is still being algorithmically curated for me. Right. And it, and it doesn't feel like that's the, the best way to like find out something true about the world. Yeah, I would agree. And even, I mean, even this, I mean, it's almost like I should say, if you want to listen to Team Human, you have to spend at least as much time, you know, you have to dedicate specifically as much time to a real world interaction as you did to listening to this, to this show, that we should always at least balance it. Because I, I think, I think you're right, even just depending on these tools for our information will make us ultimately vulnerable to sort of non-human non-human actors in these spaces because in the end I mean, there's going to be podcasts done by ais that we're not even going to know are ais at least not for you know uh, not until we we develop the ability not until we've seen enough of them that they all look like the same ray flyers over and over again exactly but that will happen it will invariably inevitably happen hopefully faster than they can adapt to uh uh appear more uh uh unique but we'll see yeah. but yeah i think humans seem to get bored of bored of trends pretty quickly and uh, uh ai's do seem quite trendy in that way so yeah fingers crossed it's going to be interesting to live through this one right this is this is the greatest test yet of the uh of the human spirit and of human discernment and we'll see i mean people were pretty bad already we, we you know we elect movie stars or tv stars to be president so in some ways we're already having a, a reality check issue that could get uh, compounded and exacerbated by this. But I share your optimism or hope that um, if anything, this is going to force us to retrieve and remember what is special about being human and become better at, at discerning the, the positive uh, uh, synergistic, you know, power of human connection over these uh, uh, much more synthetic experiences. So thanks for bringing us to that place at the end of this. That's kind of where, where I want to be as I, as I go into my week. So <laughs> I appreciate it. I appreciate your coherence. All right. Thanks so much, Douglas. Thank you. And thank everybody. Thanks for being here in the, in the Team Human Kibitz room, in, deep in the apocalypse bunker. I don't know why I say that. I guess because of that book, The Survival of the Richest Book, made me all into apocalypse bunkers. It was a, a fun thing. But I'll stop saying that now. This is the last time. So next time we're going to be in our, our uh, uh, utopian bunker, and we'll see what that one's like. But thanks a lot for doing this. It means a lot to me that y'all come. And I will uh, uh, be back next month with another uh, another Team Human Kibitz room. Uh, see you there. And thank you for being on Team Human and joining us in the Kibitz room. If you want to participate more actively, just become a member of Team Human by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human. Our last best hope for peeps.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.